Listener Production. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. So that was the big news out of the US yesterday, a federal prosecutor announcing that Donald Trump is facing charges for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. It was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the US government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. In this episode, we're going to explain what this all means because let's face it, there has been so much news about Donald Trump facing charges. There are two other trials happening. They're over the classified documents, charges and the hush money case involving the porn star Stormy Daniels. All of that makes it quite hard to keep track of how much trouble Donald Trump is really in. As you'll hear in today's episode, the charges announced yesterday are the most important by far. These charges are far more serious than either of the previous charges. This did really serious damage to the United States. That is our briefing right after today's headlines with Jan Fran. It is Thursday, the 3rd of August. G'day, Tom. If we are talking about huge upsets at the Women's World Cup, uh, this one's pretty big. It doesn't involve Australia, though. It does involve Brazil. That's it! They have done it! Can you believe this? The biggest night in Jamaican history. (laughs) Yeah, massive cheers for Jamaica there because they drew nil all with Brazil, um, which means that they send the South American country home early. Um, The country's bowing out of the pool stage. This is for the first time since 1995. Uh, and the career of the legendary Brazilian player Marta is also coming to an end. I don't think anyone really expected that to happen. Yeah, and the other big game um, last night, France beat Panama. And get this, these are two, you know, not Australian teams, um, two foreign teams in front of 40,000 people at Sydney's Allianz Stadium. Yeah, I, I know. I heard you guys talking about the uh, massive fan base for this tournament on the show yesterday because I'm a frequent listener as well. Um, <laughs> it's great to see so many people show up to a game that no Australians are involved in. Um, if you do want to show up to an Aussie game, you probably can't get tickets now, but Australia will take on Denmark in the round of 16. Um, this is Monday night. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the TV ratings from that game. We got over 2 million for the last game and, you know, the stakes just get higher and higher as we go further through the competition. And a jury in the US has sentenced the attacker who killed 11 people at a synagogue in Pittsburgh in October 2018 to the death penalty. It's the first federal death penalty imposed under the Biden administration, um, which has put a moratorium on executions. Prosecutors pushed for the death penalty for the 50-year-old truck driver Robert Bowers and the jury delivered the unanimous decision overnight. Yeah, it was the worst anti-Semitic attack in American history, Tom. But one of the things that makes this interesting is that Joe Biden actually campaigned um, in the lead up to the 2020 election to abolish the federal death penalty. Uh, And advocates say he's done nothing to move it in that direction at all. This is the second federal death penalty case to be pursued by his administration. It's the first one where a death penalty has been imposed by a jury, though. Yeah, that's quite interesting that he would campaign on abolishing it, but then you know, there's been death penalties during his time. What do you put that down to? Well, I think Donald Trump 
he had this very stark contrast to Joe Biden. I think he carried out 13 federal executions in his last six months in office. Mm. So there was a period where these federal executions were happening. And I think Biden seized on that moment um, saying, look at Trump, look at what he's doing. I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to abolish the federal death penalty. So there, there seemed to be a fever in that time um, around the issue, and that seems to have sort of dissipated. And quite clearly the moratorium is no more. They put a stay on it, as you said. But this is the first one to have actually happened, I guess, um, or, or, you know, to see the sentence handed down under Biden. Yeah, well, I guess you can make a strong statement in a time where there's lots of them happening, but then you see a horrific crime like this Pittsburgh attack and, and maybe the mood changes. And an important report into the ACT's chief prosecutor's handling of the Brittany Higgins sexual assault investigation has been leaked to the Australian newspaper. So according to the report, the inquiry, which was led by retired Judge Walter Sofronoff KC, found that the ACT Director of Public Prosecutions, Shane Drumgold, quote-unquote, lost objectivity during the prosecution of Bruce Learman and did not act with fairness and detachment as was required by his role. This report was not supposed to be made public until the end of the month, but looks like the Australian got its hands on it first. And if you are heading to a Paul McCartney tour concert later this year, you will be graced by not one, but two Beatles members. John Lennon's going to be brought back via AI. First time I ever did it, uh, it was very emotional and it it keeps being emotional because, you know, I'm singing with my old buddy again. Yeah, that's Paul talking to the ABC there and he's, uh, what he's referencing is singing with John Lennon at the Glass and Brie Festival in 2022. It's very interesting the way that they did that, though, because they used specific technology, this AI technology, to isolate John Lennon's vocals in a way that they just couldn't do before. And then he was projected on a screen, so he actually looked and really felt as though they were singing together at Glass and Brie. Yeah, it was beautiful. I saw that interview where McCartney was talking about it last night. And yeah, he really, he felt like he was, you know, he was on stage with John Lennon and singing with his old buddy. And and you could sense that because John Lennon's, you know, the, the feel of his voice, uh, the rhythm of the way he sings, that was also present in this performance. And Paul McCartney's there on stage, a much older man now, responding to that rhythm, um, you know, as a singer. And it's it's a beautiful thing and just amazing to see the incredible form Paul McCartney's still in. He was so interesting the way he spoke last night on TV. And I went to his last tour a few years ago and it was just fantastic. And obviously the depth of the back catalogue is ridiculous. Yes, well, that is a very evocative picture you paint there, Tom. And if you're keen to get those vibes, to feel those smooth rhythms, uh, McCartney's Got Back Tour arrives in Oz mid-October. Mark your calendars. And the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has announced that he's splitting up with his wife, Sophie Gregorio Trudeau. Um, they have three children, um, they've been married for 18 years. Um, pretty sad stuff. It was only uh, yesterday we did a briefing topic about billionaires breaking up and here we have a prime minister breaking up while he's still in office. Yes, I know. They listened to the show. They just wanted to make it as timely as possible, decided to <laughs> divorce now. Thank you. We, pre- we appreciate that. Sad for them, though. 
Um, they did post statements on their social media accounts. He posted in English, she posted in French, uh, basically saying, you know, we remain a close family, we love and respect each other, and we'll continue to build on everything that we've already sort of built. But, yeah, it's uh, mm. I guess it's a bit of a sad one because they, they seemed very, very in love. I only know this from my um, very strident stalking of Justin Trudeau when he first came into office. There were all these really great pictures of him with his wife and I was like, they look cute. Imagine him. He's, you know, probably one of the hottest prime ministers in the world and um, he's going to be on the market. That's going to be weird. <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah, Justin Trudeau's a bachelor. There you go. <laughs> Very eligible. All right, Jam, we'll catch you later. I'm about to go deep on the Trump charges over the stolen election lie. So now to make sense of the new charges against Donald Trump. There have been a lot of headlines flying at you over the last few months about his various alleged crimes. But as you'll hear, the latest charges are the most important by far. So the charges announced yesterday are about the stolen election lie and his attempt to overturn the election result. This will go down in a federal court in Washington, D.C., The other two criminal proceedings you might have heard about in the news are the Florida trial, and that's around the alleged mishandling of classified documents, and the New York trial for allegedly falsifying business records about the hush money payment to porn star Stormy Daniels in the lead up to the 2016 election. Now, both of those will go to trial in the first half of next year, but now these new federal charges will tank center stage. David Smith is a US politics academic at the US Study Centre at Sydney Uni. David, thanks for joining us. Am I right to say these charges are far more serious? Yeah, these charges are far more serious than either of the previous charges. These are about Trump trying to change the result of the 2020 election, whereas the previous charges are about an alleged fairly minor campaign violation back in 2016 and holding on to classified documents, that's serious, but that doesn't seem to have resulted in any kind of damage. This, on the other hand, yeah. did really serious damage to the United States. There are still tens of millions of Americans who believe that the election was stolen from Trump. This led to the January 6th riot, which led to five deaths on the day of the riot, and four members of law enforcement taking their own lives subsequently. But most importantly, this just did huge damage to the whole political process in the United States, where you had the loser of the election, who was also the sitting president, not accepting the result. And this was one of the biggest most dangerous moments for American democracy that there had been in generations. So, yes, this is far more serious than either of those other charges. Okay, so when you look at the four counts he's been indicted on, you've got conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of and an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights. So what are the actual laws that he's alleged to have broken here by doing what he did by peddling this lie about the election? Well, some of it is essentially equivalent to fraud. That is trying to use false information in order to bring about a certain outcome. Some of it is a lot more serious than though. That fourth charge 
He is being charged with trying to deprive millions of Americans, the whole voting population, of their rights to have their votes counted and to have their votes contribute to an election result. That's what would have happened if he had actually overturned the election. So he's being charged there under a provision of the 14th Amendment, which was what was put in place after the Civil War, to provide equal protection to all Americans. So he is being charged with violating the the civil rights of the entire country. So that is extremely serious. When we were talking about the other indictments, the two others we mentioned around the documents and the hush money payments, there was always this conversation, well, even if he gets done on these charges, he could still campaign, you know, for election from jail, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And, you know, to an Australian, it obviously sounds completely crazy, but this is the reality mm. Americans are living with at the moment. But would this be different? So let's imagine he is mm. convicted on these charges. What are the penalties and could he still run for office? He could definitely go to jail because of these charges. These are very serious. The other two charges, I don't think that he would have ended up in prison as a result of those. But these ones, uh, if he is proven guilty, he would definitely be a candidate for prison. The question would then be really, is it actually wise to send a political leader who still has a major following of about 40% of the country, is it wise to actually send someone like that to prison? Basically, US prosecutors and, and the judge involved would have to think about the same questions that prosecutors in other countries have thought about when heads of state have been uh, sent to jail or convicted of war crimes. And in fact, the prosecutor who is overseeing this case, Jack Smith, has had a lot of experience with the International Criminal Court and with actually prosecuting the leaders of other countries, including Kosovo, for serious crimes. So there are very, very weighty considerations around if he is found guilty, whether he would go to jail or not. But I don't think that the other charges would send him to jail. If he did go to jail, then he could still run for president. The only way that someone can be disqualified for running for president in the US if they meet the age and citizenship requirements is if Congress actually passes a specific measure prohibiting them from running for federal office, which can only happen after an impeachment conviction. So the Senate did have the opportunity to do that back in January 2021. There is even a precedent of a candidate running for president from prison before. That's in 1920. Eugene Debs, who was a socialist leader, who I believe was in prison um, on some kind of charge related to World War One, he ran for mm. president uh, from prison and actually got six percent of the vote. So there's nothing to stop Trump running for president, even if he does go to prison. Well, Trump's already spinning this as part of his political witch hunt narrative, saying that mm. the timing for these charges is political. It's right before he's ramping up his campaign for his Republican presidential nomination. So to test out his his argument there, why has it taken two and a half years for these charges to be laid? Well, it's taken that long, I believe, because they've gone through the proper process of gathering evidence and preparing a case. They didn't just arrest him and charge him uh, immediately after the January 6th riots, which would have been a violation of due process and of legal norms in the United States. They have actually undertaken a proper investigation. 
They have gathered a lot of evidence from a lot of sources and considered it very seriously. They've convened a grand jury and the grand jury has spoken. To do these things properly takes a lot of time. The reality is that there's probably no timing that would have really suited Trump very well for these charges to come down. But the fact that it has taken so long is actually an indication that it's been done properly in the same way that a lot of the other charges that Trump is facing are only now being laid. That reflects the fact that doing a proper criminal investigation takes a long time. Yeah, well, it seems that Jack Smith, the the special counsel, the prosecutor here, is well aware of these issues. Um, In announcing the indictment, he seemed to indicate that by saying, look, we're going to get through this as quickly as possible. So what is the timeline for this? And do you think that timeline is being massaged given the political context around these charges? This is going to be a very tricky issue because of all the other trials that Trump is facing next year. So he's already got two criminal trials scheduled as well as a couple of other civil trials. And that's something that could actually feed into the decision of when this trial is going to take place. So this is up to the federal judge who has been assigned to this case, uh, Tanya Chutkin. She decides when it will be held, although there'll also be pre-trial motions and things like that that could delay the trial. I'm sure that Trump's lawyers will push for this trial to be held after the 2024 election. They will probably claim that before the 2024 election, it's going to be impossible for Trump to get a fair trial, especially in Washington, D.C., which is a city where 95% of people voted against him in the last election. Trump will certainly publicly make the argument that this is election interference, that this is all just designed to derail his 2024 campaign. The prosecution will want this done as quickly as possible. They will probably want it to happen before all of these other trials that are happening, especially the ones that are taking place around these far less serious issues. They probably want this trial to happen first. But this is all going to be down to the judge who has been assigned to this case. It's hard to tell at the moment exactly when this will happen. Wow, that would be so messy if it didn't go to trial until after the 2024 election. I mean, I guess it just is a bit of a wake-up call to the reality that there's going to be no time when it all just calms down and goes smoothly in America, given the various charges against Trump and the political climate. That's right. And if this one was delayed until after the 2024 election, and if Trump won that election, which polls suggest he definitely could, then he would probably either get the Justice Department to dismiss the case or he would be able to pardon himself, potentially. So that's Mm. another reason why his lawyers want it after the 2024 election. But, yeah, certainly this is not going to calm down. One of the political effects of this trial is probably going to be that for the next year, a lot of the focus is going to be back on the 2020 election. If you were a Republican strategist, this would be the last thing that you actually want because relitigating 2020 is going to be the sort of thing that brings the anti-Trump coalition out again in the same way that it was in 2020. If it's seen that this election is somehow about Trump trying to redeem himself, uh, you know, trying to get his name cleared and, uh, you know, and come back and win again in 2024 while still claiming 
that he won in 2020. That is the sort of thing that is really going to antagonise that coalition that uh, voted Trump out last time. Republicans would really want the focus to be on Joe Biden, who has been a pretty unpopular president. He's still got an approval rating that sits around 39 or 40%. If it was a referendum on Biden, then Republicans would be fairly confident of winning. But if it's a referendum on Trump, then it's going to be a lot harder for them to win. And that could be one of the political effects of this trial. Right. That's really interesting. So, I mean, at first, my mind went to Trump himself, which is what tends to happen for all of us because he draws so much of our attention, which is, well, he'll like this narrative in some ways. But you make a really good point there that this draws attention to the most damaging issue for the Republicans and the most encouraging fact is to get Democrats to come out and vote. Yes, absolutely. And Trump really can't help himself as far as 2020 goes, even though people have told him constantly not to focus on 2020 because it's not a winning issue for him, but to focus on the future. He always comes back to 2020. He always comes back to his grievances, his claims that he actually won the election in 2020. It's something that he just can't let go. And Democrats are certainly happy for the focus to be on that because they certainly believe that that's a winning issue for them. Well, it also puts Trump's Republican competitors, Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence, in an interesting situation. They have to make a big call on how to handle this whole thing. And it already seems like they're going very different directions, which is not surprising that it was actually Mike Pence as vice president who stood up to Trump on January 6, 2020. Yeah, that's right. Trump wanted Pence to use his ceremonial role in reading out and counting the votes to overturn the result, and Pence refused to go along with that. And Pence's comment when the indictment has come down has been that Trump has the presumption of innocence, but that essentially this is what happens when you try to put yourself above the Constitution. Ron DeSantis, on the other hand, is trying to do this really difficult trick of running against Trump while still trying to curry favour with Trump's supporters. Mm. So he has said things like, well, if Trump had drained the swamp properly, then he wouldn't be in this situation. Uh, and today he suggested that Trump can't get a fair trial in D.C., and there should be a new law saying that if, if someone is charged with a federal crime in D.C., they should be able to move it to their home jurisdiction, which in Trump's case would be South Florida. So I don't think that DeSantis's uh, approach to this is particularly effective in terms of helping his own campaign. But then again, polling shows that there's very little appetite in the Republican Party for Pence-style criticism of Trump either. That was David Smith from the US Studies Centre. And such an important point he made there about this whole thing being really bad for the Republicans in general. It might be good for Trump within the Republican movement, but the whole episode, as he said, puts so much focus on a very painful chapter for a lot of Americans. It'll bring more Democrats out to vote, which is really important in America because they don't have compulsory voting like we do. It's the issues that fire them up, often the things they want to stop from happening that get them to vote. So looking back, these charges could be absolutely pivotal in the future of America. Listener.